Welcome to the HS Health Tech Podcast, which covers the latest in health and technology through interviews with disruptive health startups and leaders. So you are listening to one of our first 20 episodes. So first of all, thank you so much for listening. As you can imagine with the podcast, they get more and more popular, which ours certainly did after episode 20. So we started giving proper introductions, long introductions, and we upgraded our equipment and everything like that. So that's why you're hearing from me now, because we're putting this at the start of every one of those first 20 episodes. So I am your host. My name is James Someru. I'm an anesthetics and intensive care doctor by background. So I practiced for five years. I did loads of different jobs in policy and leadership within the UK NHS. I've run two different health tech accelerators to help startups grow, access different markets in the UK and abroad. And now I'm a co-founder of HS and we build, scale and invest in the best health tech startups. So if you want to get in touch with us, then head on over to the description of this podcast. In there, you will find all of the links to our social media, website, emails, etc. So click on those, follow us, let us know what you think of the podcast and feel free to suggest any guests. Hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hope you enjoy the rest of the podcast. Connect with us. Let us know what you think. Welcome to this week's episode of the HS Podcast. My name is James, and with me this week, I have David Crane. Uh, David uses behavioral science and technology to help people lead happier and healthier lives. So David is the founder of Smoke Free, which helps people give up smoking and has been downloaded over 4 million times. I'm going to let David explain a lot more about his background, but a quick summary, he's got got an MSc and a PhD in psychology. He's previously founded a debating site, a debating association, and a development agency. So he's built sort of 400 apps and websites. Um, and he's got a strong interest in community. So he even founded a company that extracted info from forums and blogs and had clients, including Number 10 Downing Street. Um, I'm sure that doesn't do you too much justice, David. I'm sure you've done plenty more stuff than that even. But how are you doing? Welcome. Um, hi, James. Thank you very much for having me on the podcast. It's great to be here. And uh, actually, um, I was very impressed with that that, uh, that summary. Um, you, you've done your research excellently. I have. I pride myself on my research, David, so thank you. <laughs> um, cool. So you've obviously got a really cool background, David. So yeah, without me saying anymore, well, why don't you just tell us all about it? Tell us your story. Well, um, so I guess I've been an entrepreneur for around 20 five years now, um, founded a web development agency in, uh, in 1985 when about two months after Netscape had, had just gone public with the first IPO um, and we were, um, we were building just small websites, we built one for Cypress Hill, I think that was the first one uh, that we ever built um, and then have been in and around the internet ever since including, uh, as you say, things such as uh, sentiment analysis of comments on forums and blogs that was um, letting the government know about some of the heated debates that were going on in immigration in the, uh, in the early 2000s. So this has been a, a long-standing problem that politicians have failed to address. Um, and uh, have had yeah, debating companies have always tried to find um, a business that provided a win-win, something that would allow... Uh, me to, to, to feel have, have some kind of uh, success in business but also was was doing something that was good for people and, and so the debating society was part of this um, we were trying to um, inform people of the the, you know, the other sides of arguments fundamentally trying to get people to um, to, to um, challenge their own views with what people on the opposite side were saying um, well, I, I actually, one of the things that I don't think um, you did uncover, I, I tried to start cannabis cafes, which I was quite involved in, in the cannabis legalization movement for a while. Um, and then about six years ago now, I, I kind of, um, I sort of fell out of love with technology. And I just didn't think that it was, it was fulfilling all of the emotional needs that I wanted from a career. So I... I packed in the job with the debating organisation and, and took a few months off. Uh, and this was 2012, so this was London Olympics time. Um, and 
I got really inspired by all the athletes and um, their dedication to excellence. And I thought one of the things that was um, critical in their success was, was the psychology that they had adopted. So um, I thought I wanted to be a, a sports psychologist. And I, I had these great dreams of, of, of being the Arsenal sports psychologist and helping them overcome their, some of their, what seems to me quite obvious psychological barriers to winning games. Um, unfortunately, I didn't have a background in psychology. I, I've got long personal history in, in psychology. I've been interested in behaviour change for, well, ever since I was in primary school to be honest with you. Um, and I've, I've done all kinds of different um, pieces of work on myself, therapeutic work, courses, four-day fasts, vision quests, you know, or anything to, 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 to challenge my own behaviour. So this was a, a great passion of mine, but not formally, um, formally enshrined in education. So when I went to do this sports psychology masters, they said, no, you need to do a conversion course first, which really annoyed me because I thought, you know, I was 48 at the time. I didn't really think I had many years I could mess around. But um, as it turned out, it was just the most bit of fortuitous luck because um, when I, I was asked quite early on, September, October, what I wanted to do for my final year dissertation and I'd just given up smoking. And I'd looked around for an app at the time and I didn't think any were adopting the approach to behaviour change that I thought was effective. Um, so I thought, oh, I'll create a stop smoking app, just like that. Um, and, I, and I was a very good friend of mine, had an app development business, and he had developers with downtime. So together, we, we just we put smoke-free into operation. We built it over a six-month period. Um, my simple idea for what the app could become, which was just basically a way of recording cravings and trying to get a sense of when they happen, expanded in, as these things tend to do. Um, and we ended up doing a, an RCT, the, the randomised control trial of what are these series of missions. These are daily tasks that we give to users for, at that point, the first month of their quit. And these tasks follow uh, the behaviour change techniques that are used in face-to-face stop smoking so we thought they might work but we didn't have no idea whether they were going to work in an app or whether our interpretation of them was going to be suitable to people um and i remember telling my supervisor that i was hoping for 500 participants and, and he laughed because you know that's quite a big sample size for a psychology study uh, we ended up with twenty-eight thousand. so the app was a great success from the start we got a ton of data the rct was ended up published the, the missions um we found double the user's chances of quitting. So from this, uh, it, 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 you know, certainly the, the latter part of my career has been a very nice moments of serendipity where everything has just come together um, and I feel like I'm in exactly the right spot. Super fascinating. I mean, you've, you've hit the nail on the head there with the first question that I was going to ask you because I was going to say, I was going to say technology, debating, science and psychology, behavioural science, you know, have you finally found your calling? But it sounds like you certainly have. I think so. I mean, the idea of, of being able to help lots of people with technology rather than, um, you know, the, my delusions of grandeur mean that, that sort of as, I think as a therapist, I don't think I'd be quite satisfied. I, I know I want to help, I want to help lots of people. And, and tech is the way to do that. Um, and, also, I think the fundamental problem that we have with behaviour change tech is that there really isn't a lot of evidence about what works. This is a huge problem. About 70% of us will die of a disease that is related to our behaviour. These are you know, the non-communicable diseases, the diseases of inactivity, of diet, of smoking, of alcohol. Now, these are diseases that are fixed by changing our behaviour. But we don't know how to do that. We know how to get people to start a new behaviour. We're pretty good at that. But we, what we don't know is how to help them maintain it. How do we help people stay, in my case, um, smoke-free for a long term when the, when the temptation to smoke is all around? And this is, I think, where the, the, so the, the core uh, 
experience of behaviour change that I've got personally comes in very useful, combined with the idea of technology and how do you build really good user experiences that are inherently rewarding, combined with the science aspect that then allows us to then say, okay, well, let's um, use good science to discover which behaviour change techniques work in which combination, in which form, for which individuals at which moment in time. So how difficult then is it to change behaviour? Well, most attempts fail. If you are trying to go up smoking and you kind of just do it on your own with no nicotine replacement therapy or e-cigs or behavioural support, your chances of staying quit long term are about 3 or 4%. So 97% of all quit attempts, if they're not aided, will fail. And it's a similar um, failure rate when we're looking at diets or exercise regimes or, or alcohol reduction attempts. The, there's an initial um, boost where we are able to, to make behaviour change or start a behaviour change, but the maintenance is, is, is the fundamental problem. And that is, I think, largely because the benefits of the old behaviour uh, or, <clears throat> or the benefits of inactivity are quite ingrained. They, they feel very salient a lot of the time, whereas the benefits of the new behaviour, the benefits of not smoking, uh, are kind of realised fairly quickly. So quite soon after you've, you've stopped smoking, you feel great that you're getting control over your cravings, that you're not giving into them. Food starts, starts to taste better. Things smell more nicely. You can go up four flights of stairs without being out of breath. But that then becomes the new normal. And when we're trying to compare incremental changes in improvement, they, they just seem less impactful when you're still having to, you know, resist the temptation to smoke every time you have a drink or even every time you wake up in the morning or finish a meal or all those other kind of key moments that trigger the desire to smoke. So um, it is a, a kind of a constant battle, certainly for the first few months and, 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 and then decreasingly for years to weigh up the benefits of the new behaviour, not smoking, against the benefits of, oh, I remember what it was like to smoke. Hmm, maybe that would be lovely. Maybe I could just go and do that. It's really interesting, actually, when you talk about it from that perspective. I mean, someone said to me once that, you know, all healthcare is behaviour change. And I think a lot of it is, even when we talk about things like medicine's adherence, right? So the way that you're describing stopping smoking and, you know, you initially stop and you get all these you know, enormous benefits and they're tangible. And then as those benefits start to taper down, you know, there's less of an incentive to do the difficult thing, which is to stay off smoking. You know, there's, there's definite comparison there but for, for medicine's adherence as well. You know, if I start taking an antibiotic for, you know, some sort of infected mosquito bite or something, and I see, you know, massive improvement overnight, it doesn't hurt anymore how likely am I to finish the course for seven days when everything's absolutely fine? Well, actually not that much because it's not making that huge amount of difference anymore. So if you even think about, you know, the preventative medicines as well, you know, the aspirins and the statins of the world where, you know, taking those medicines is, I think Stephen from Echo said it on a podcast, you know, it's similar to taking a vitamin really. If you miss a dose, it's not really going to, you're not going to feel it, but it might have this huge impact within your body. If it's not tangible to us, it's really difficult for us to, stay adhering to those courses of medicines and different things that that make us feel so much better. So yeah, it's interesting that you've then turned to technology as a way of, I suppose, then continuing that reward system. Yeah, and I think it's exactly right. It, it is a reward system. It's trying to make the benefits of the new behaviour outweigh the benefits of the old. Um, and, and as you spot, that, yeah, that's very difficult when a lot of the benefits are hidden from us. They're to do with our internal organs or they're to do with um, minor changes to our, our, our skin tone that really aren't noticeable day to day. They're only noticeable you know, month to month or, or even year to year. So um, how do we... The, 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 I think what technology and in particular apps have is... Um, the ability to reach people at these critical moments. So um, one of the theories, the psychological theories that we are heavily influenced by is, is, uh, is the prime theory of motivation. And, and what the prime theory says is that um, behaviour is influenced on a moment-to-moment -moment basis by whichever competing impulse or inhibition is most prevalent at that time. 
And what that says to me is that, um, for example, it doesn't really matter how motivated you are to go running at seven o'clock in the morning if you're going out at seven o'clock in the evening. It doesn't really matter how motivated you are at lunchtime. What matters is how motivated you are at quarter seven when it comes to putting your shoes on. And this, I think, is true for um, other areas of uh, behaviour that we want to influence it. We, we don't need to influence it all the time. We just need to influence it at the critical times when, for example, smoking, when lapsing is likely. So we know that um, lapsing, uh, people lapse very frequently when they're around other smokers, when they're drinking alcohol, when they're in, you know, the environments that used to make them want to smoke. So if we can encourage them not to smoke at those times, so let's say that we detect they're in a pub and it's like half past 10 in the evening um, and we can probably guess they've had a couple of drinks by then. You know, we may use alerts to kind of preempt a craving to smoke um, so that the desire isn't, doesn't just catch people by surprise. Um, and with med- medicine adherence, which, you know, so a lot of this stuff is about habits, right? What we're trying to do is form new habits so that the behaviour is automatically repeated without thought. Um, and fundamentally, the way that habits are established is because behaviour is rewarded. So, in other words, to um, establish a new behaviour, we need to reward that somehow. Um, and technology has the ability to do that because we've got our phones with us most of the time. Uh, and we can make, you know, we can make the phone, we can make animations dance and, and you know, give badges. And there's all kinds of other... I'm sure, more elaborate form of reward that we can come up with uh, and will. So you mentioned the prime theory of motivation there, and you mentioned that, you know, almost quite flippantly, something that we should all potentially know, which we definitely all do not know. So there is this thing called the prime theory of motivation. Is is smoke-free based on lots of these different types of theories? Is is you being an academic, you know, with your MSc and PhD in psychology, is it all of that academic information that you've then extracted the best of to put into Smoke Free to make it work? Is it heavily rooted in those theories? It is, yes. I, I think psychological theory has to come as a starting point in any um, behaviour change technology. We have to have a, a sense of what we think people are going to do, how they behave. Um, how they operate, what they think, um, and you know, we haven't. There are there are no um, completely comprehensive theories of of, of behaviour or health behaviour, to my knowledge. Um, but I think there's ones that we can use to move us toward a complete understanding. So the prime theory is one. Um, we use um, positive reinforcement, uh, operant conditioning, um, and uh, and those kind of sort of ones that have. Um, been very well established over the over the, the last uh, 50, 100 years. Uh, and then the other one that we use uh, that I think is particularly important is Rothman's theory of behavioural maintenance. So what Rothman says is that um, we initiate a new behaviour when we are optimistic about the changes that new behaviour will bring but we maintain a new behaviour only when we are satisfied with the outcomes. So that comes back to the smoking thing. So we, we're optimistic. We want to give up smoking because we think, I want to be healthier. I want to save money. I want to be able to go up four flights of stairs without wheezing. Um, and it's only after... It, Rothman says that we will only maintain uh, a smoking cessation attempt when we feel that we have saved money when we are able to go up four flights of stairs without wheezing, when our expectations are met or exceeded by the reality of the new behaviour. Um, and so that is, is, is our job, really, is to make those benefits more salient. Yeah, again, like really interesting for me when I think about this, about all the times that I've tried a new fad and it hasn't quite stuck. And, and yeah, you're right, because I can sort of see that. And... Yeah, if if going to the gym three times a week doesn't show me the results that I was expecting, and you know expectation doesn't meet reality, then yeah, I'm I'm far less incentivized. So on that basis, then, when entrepreneurs in the health tech space are thinking about designing and developing new products, you know, be that in the digital therapeutic space, be that even in a prevention space, you know, you're relying on continued use of the app. 
it strikes me that all of this behavioral neuroscience and and you know behavioral change theory should should be much more applied and should be it should almost be incorporated in in every app that, that relies on some sort of stickiness right well, yes. I mean, I, I, as, as a psychologist and a behavioural scientist, I, I, I probably would say that. <laughs> yeah, you're going to be quite biased in that answer. I, 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 I should admit a vested interest, yes. But no, it, it, it makes perfect sense to me. You know, we, we are we do need to understand how people behave, uh, and you know, and so you know, part of this is is understanding you know user research as well. So um, you know, they're all things that I'm sure. Um, many of the entrepreneurs listening will be doing early, which is listening to their users and, uh, and watching what they do on the technology, but, but also having an understanding of, of the kind of the overarching theories that have been empirically tested. You know, the, um, the health belief model, the, the idea that you know, we need to, it's not enough just to get people to, 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 want, to motivate people to want to change their behavior. It's not just about showing them, oh, you know, here's a diseased lung. Um, we need to give them, we need to make them feel confident in their ability to stop smoking. And self-efficacy or self-confidence, um, it, you know, is fundamentally important when it comes to behavior change. And, and I think that without that understanding of, of the theory of, of behavior, then affecting change is just harder. I mean, we can get lucky with it, but it just, it just, it's a shortcut for you know, for knowing what, and I, now this is the other thing that, that I think is really important is, um, you know, is to use the, the, the knowledge of the scientists that have gone before us who have said, okay, look, we've tried this and, you know, this is a really good thing. We, we know this works. We know this doesn't work. It, you know, it makes so much sense to me to use that expertise and, 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 and the literature um, and to, in order to develop our, our products if, what we're doing is, is trying to change behavior. So on that note then, let's talk about the design of Smoke Free. So how did you think about designing the app and the user journey? Who did you bring in to help you with that? Was a lot of it anecdotal based on your experience? Talk us through that kind of from an idea to reality and how that worked. So I think, yeah, I mean, the fun, fundamental um, Steering point is me as a grumpy old man um, who is incredibly intolerant of, of, of <laughs> technology that doesn't work. Um, so I've tried to make it um, a technology that doesn't annoy me, uh, and with varying degrees of success. There are, there are still things about it that, that, that are frustrating, but fundamentally, so I've, I've tried to make it um, in, in a way that I thought was good. Um, the other thing that we you know, very much relied on was user reviews, mm. not just reviews of, 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 of the app. Um, of our app, but reviews of other apps in the space to get a sense of oh, what do people want from these kinds of apps? What do they like? What 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 they what really annoys them? Um, it's funny actually. I saw on a, a talk you did at UCL. I just I found the slides online, and and one of your slides is 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 a competitor slide, and you know your kind of very clean, simple UI UX is is just compared to what was it, 300 other stop smoking apps, which, you, you know, there's a few screenshots of, of some of them and they look, they just look all like busy and, and awful. And I mean, there's, there's, it seemed quite easy for you to sort of go, okay, well, actually, let's just look at the competition and see what's out there. And it seems from that slide anyway, I don't know if you can talk to a bit more, but it seems from that slide that that, that was just the number one thing of like, this is, this is a really simple way to give us a USP. I think so. Yeah, it's because it's, it comes from understanding or, or, or uh, a guess about what do users want. Mm. So, um, and, and it does come back to, I think, the, you know, these theories of change and my experience of change, a feeling that people wanted to see progress. People wanted to see that their, a, a continued effort was worthwhile. So if we, if we can't show um, change from day to day, so if we can't show, oh, look how your lungs are so much better, you know, we can't graphically show that within the app, then what we can do um, to show progress is simple things like time smoke-free. So that's, you know, that's the most important figure that we show. We, um, uh, and if you open up the dashboard of the app, it kind of, it's almost, almost all of the screen. The, 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 you know, the top bit of the screen is about the time smoke-free because that 
people feel very proud about how long that this particular quit attempt has lasted. And, and so, the, and the reason that's important is because people know in before they're about to, um, to make a quit attempt, and particularly, you know, if they feel that they need a bit of help stopping smoking, which is why they've downloaded an app in the first place. So they've got this sense that it's going to be tough. And therefore, every, you know, if we show them, well, look, this is how well you've done. Look at, you never thought you could do six weeks smoke-free. Mm. Uh, you, and now, now it's, now it's uh, six and a half weeks smoke-free. Um, so those progress indicators uh, were really important. And I think what we've tried to do is just to not overwhelm users with them so i think a lot of a lot of apps have these progress indicators on there but it's sort of all part of the same screen and, and i think it's hard for users to to pick between the six or eight different bits of information on the screen for the one that's really important to them whereas what what we do is you know you, you can scroll and stop on the on the piece of information that's useful so the message there just user feedback user feedback user feedback right yeah, exactly. And, 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 you know, there's the informal um, looking user reviews and then there's, you know, talking to users and, and there is no substitution mm. sitting down with users um, and, and watching what they do with your app. Um, it, you know, it's, it's not always easy, but it's always informative. Um, you always come back with that, oh, wow, I have no idea people did that. Um, and so what, what are the key features then? You know, what is the secret sources? So, cause you, you know, you've mentioned, you know, there's, there's time saved. I assume there's money saved and days smoke free and how many cigarettes you haven't smoked. I'm sure there's all this, all this data and stuff. And there's a few notifications that nudge you. What's the secret source? Is it, is it the minutiae of how you actually deliver all of that? Or are there some other key features? What's the, or, or maybe just talk us through the user journey of it. I think, I don't think there is one thing that we can sort of say is, is particularly critical other than being dedicated to trying to help people stop smoking. Um, so we don't, for example, start with a preconceived idea about what, how someone else is, what's going to work for somebody else. We, we try to give people agency. So try to give them a suite of tools that, um, that they can use as they see fit. Um, so for example, with the, with the dashboard, you can adjust the dashboard and you can put the, if, you, if actually what you want to see is, you know, is the money saved figure, then you can put that to the top of the screen. Um, or cigarettes not smoked, you can do that. And then, I mean, and there are those, those things which I think are, um, that are quite good sort of in a moment. They're, they're pretty good moments for moments. So um, one of the things that people tell us is they, if they've got a craving to smoke, they go to the dashboard and they see how well they've done and that, that really helps. Um, but then there are, there's a kind of, uh, the thing I think we're, that really sets us apart is the program, the Stop Smoking program that we are, we put together partly with the missions, um, partly with our, our new chatbot um, feature, which walks people through the various different elements that are proven to help them quit. And, and combine that program with a, a focus on personalization. So coming back to this notion that behavior change is not one size fits all, that there is no universal set of instructions that everyone is going to follow and be successful with. Um, if you were sitting down with a stop smoking expert or any other kind of expert, they would adjust the techniques uh, that they present to you um, the order in which those techniques are given and the way in which uh, the suggestions are made according to to you, to, to, to how you respond to them, what they perceive as being um, your needs or your interests. And, and, and I think that our job is to try and get as close to that as we possibly can. So we're very focused on providing personalised stop smoking advice um, we're not, you know, we've just really started this journey. I think there's a long, long way that we can go. Um, but that, that I believe is, is the thing that's really going to make us super effective. Mm. It brings me on to a point actually about healthcare technology in general. And it's something to do with this idea that 
technology is being created to replace individuals or at least to mimic them and to do all these different things. It seems to me that as you're building smoke free and, and, you know, iterating it and making it better and better, you're trying your best to mimic, you know, how good, you know, perhaps a one-on-one counselor would be, because I imagine a human to human interaction, it's going to be all those things that you just talked about. It's going to be personalized. The, the things that people respond to are going to come up first. And so, as you're building this up, it's almost like you're trying to, you know, get as close to the gold standard, which would be, you know, a one-to-one human interaction for everybody in the world that wanted to stop smoking, which is obviously impossible to deliver. So it seems like you're trying to augment what we're doing as a society, as a population, by trying to get as many people that kind of human-to-human interaction as possible. But you're trying to do that utilizing this technology and make it as personalized as possible. Do you think that's fair? I, I, yes, I think, that's, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think the only caveats I would make to that are that um, it's, I don't know if it will ever be possible for technology to be as good as humans. Um, you know, maybe if we're talking yeah. a few hundred years' time, um, then, then possibly, but there's a, you know, there's a long way to go between here and there. And so um, I... I, I don't have any ambitions to totally replace people. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I, think, I think that what we could do is supplement, um, you know, r- real, um, real interactions. And so technology is much more convenient for people to access. Um, you know, there are, in, in the UK, we have some of the best stop smoking services in the world, face-to-face stop smoking services in the world. Um, but they're really underutilised. About five percent of all quitters will use the free um, stop smoking services, which provide group or one-on-one um, quitting attempts. Even though those you are that, that that is absolutely the best way that you could quit. Mm. Um, and the reason I think people don't utilise those services is because it's a bit of a pain in the ass to get off your sofa on it, <laughs> going to you know a. a some kind of community centre and, and sit down with other people. You've got to be, you know, you've got to be pretty dedicated. So technology brings the change to where the individual is and, and is available, you know, much more frequently. 24-7, you know, you can't call your stop smoking counter up at three o'clock in the morning when you're having a craving. You're not going to like that very much, but technology can do that. So I think what we would try to do uh, now and for the immediate future is just fill in the gap between where where we are now and, and where humans, the, you know, the, the sort of gold standard of human-to-human contact lies. And if we can relieve, um, take some of the burden from, um, from people, uh, from the stop smoking services that are um, underfunded due to austerity, uh, and, you know, there's, it's harder for people to access these face-to-face services. So, so if we can come in and say, okay, listen, we'll, we'll help either the majority of people or we will help people for the majority of the time. But then when there are people that need you know, extra help, that's when the uh, telephone services or the face-to-face services can come in and, and therefore we're maximising um, the resources that are available. Yeah, for me, you're doing those two things. You're, you're increasing access of something which is as close to human-to-human as you, as you can get at the moment. So you're increasing access to people that wouldn't normally have that human-to-human interaction at all. So, and you're giving them that access at the convenience of, of you know, on their, on their iPhone or in their pocket or whatever. And the other thing you're doing is that you're taking pressure off a very pressurized service. There are so many people that want that human to human interaction that want that one-to-one service and as you say those those services are underfunded they don't have anything except enormous waiting lists and those clinicians don't have the time to do that so you're kind of allowing the population to receive as much of this help as possible that's that's what it is for me and i think that's it's really similar for a lot of b2c business models in health particularly in prevention you know these Technology companies that that build these prevention tools that that sell B to C, yeah, they they do that exactly those two things to me. They increase access and they take pressure off a system which is overpressurized. I mean, I spoke to Peter Haynes from Sleepio the other day, and and I just wrote something for, for Forbes on him, and you know they do exactly the same thing. You know, by getting to the to the patients and the consumers and and the population in a different way. 
they take pressure off you know providers like the nhs by making sure that these people never need to access those services and they get them earlier and all these different things so i think it's a really great model for me it's a really sensible model because you can also generate revenue to become a sustainable business you can also generate evidence which means that if you do want to sell to a healthcare provider like the nhs in future then you've already got this evidence base behind you and so this this new b2c model and b2b model which can go via employers and insurers and things it makes a lot of sense to me because if we're going to drive the healthcare sector as a whole we have to embrace this and we have to sort of remove this paradigm that it's only okay to sell to the nhs because for me it absolutely isn't if, if we're going to help the nhs the most we can take pressure off it by doing all these different things like you're doing and like peter's doing sleepio and it just makes complete sense to me to, to go those routes because the NHS understandably needs a heck of a lot of evidence. It needs to know that if it adopts something, it's it's proven and, and the evidence base is strong. It also needs to take on sustainable businesses because at the end of the day, you don't want to take on a product that's then going to fail and disappear in a few weeks. So these different yeah. business models can can really enable that for me. And it's, it's what we look at at HS, you know, whether whether we're selecting a company for the accelerator, whether we're looking at someone to invest in an early stage, you know, it's the same things. If we can appreciate that these people have an understanding of how healthcare actually works in, in all its different forms and all its different business models, and they can plot a route around these difficult structures, we're far more likely to take people on. Um, so, yeah, I'm a huge champion of what you're doing. And, and I think particularly that the, the business model is really interesting. And just on that then so as a business model are you straight b2c do you do any b2b stuff do you have any interactions with the nhs we are moving into b2b um so we've been to b2c so far uh and have done pretty well at that uh, and i would just say that the the other benefit i think of a b2c a straight b2c model is that it allows for experimentation so that allows yeah. us to develop um, and, and refine and iterate our, our way towards a more effective product, which is, you know, is less, you know, we need users in, to, in order to be able to, um, to try different techniques out, different combinations of techniques. Um, but we are now um, talking to the NHS, we're on the Digital Health London Accelerator, um, and that's given us some great avenues into um, to navigating this, this, you know, this huge um, organisation, which has so many touch points. Uh, and the reason, the fundamental reason that we are um, looking B two B is that uh, the, the, most smokers are now uh, of a lower income, so it's disproportionately um, prevalent in um, people from lower socioeconomic status. Mm. Uh, and so, um, and, and what we want to be able to do is to provide a more complete stop smoking package that um, allows, provides all of the support that a smoker to need, needs to quit smoking. But, um, you know, that will come at a price. And if you are from, of a low income, even though you will save money in, you know, a few weeks of giving up smoking, the barrier to paying um, you know, that kind of sum is such that you will just put off mm. Whereas the benefits to public health are such from helping people stop smoking, the benefits to to, you know, to public health in general, I think the NHS spends about, it costs about two and a half billion each year smoking and then there's mm. another seven or eight billion to society, um, you know, to things such as respiratory units where um, patients who smoke, lots of patients present when they're smoking, and if they carry on smoking, their chances of, uh, of the operation succeeding are lower. Their, their chances of recovery are lower. So there's there's immediate benefits there. Um, just 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 on that, do you know, what I hear, I hear quite a lot. I hear people use this justification of, oh, but it's fine because the, the the taxes that are paid on cigarettes more than pay for all the all the healthcare that they then go and access. And I'm just, I just think, you know, that's such a ludicrous argument. Like, I mean, not even ignoring the fact that all of the suffering and all of the um, yeah, just just negativity for people's health and mental health and wellness in general that comes of it. You know, it's just such a such a crazy argument to even start to start to talk about. No, exactly. The the, the taxes from smoking don't come anywhere close no. 
to um, covering the costs of smoking. And as you say, um, it, you know, the, the, the cost to an individual from the health, it's not just that smoking exactly. is half of the people um, that, that you know, take up the habit long term. It, it, before people die of a smoking-related disease, they normally suffer for years mm. um, with all kinds of debilitating illnesses that are, if you've ever seen anyone go through these things, then, then you would not be encouraging, you know, some people to smoke for, for, because that's some kind of revenue-positive yeah. um, benefit. So, um, yeah, so there, there are these, the, the, the thing, the bit, the the, the Business model for us is definitely to move into B2B so that we can reach more of the people who would not otherwise um, pay for the services, but yet who, if we are able to stop smoking, society as a whole and the NHS in particular benefits from. And when you say B2B, are you talking about um, employers who give it to their employees? Are you talking about insurers? Who are you talking about when you say B2B? Primarily, at the moment, well, I mean, all of those organisations, but at the moment, the NHS. So um, okay. we are we're, we're looking at and areas within the NHS and maternity units and respiratory units and, and you know, people with severe mental illness, a, a very high proportion of whom smoke, uh, as well as primary care. Um, okay. So what would it be then that, that either a CCG or a department or whatever would would purchase it and then prescribe it to their patients? Potentially. I mean, the, the problem that we've got is that, um, and this is, I think is true for any sort of preventative type behaviour change, company is that the benefits for stopping someone smoking now last for decades. <laughs> um, but the, um, but, you know, CCGs and, and, and units within hospitals, their budgets run 12, 24 months. Yeah. So we need to find a way of saying, okay, you spend £100 now and you'll get £500 back in the next 12 months, let alone the, you know, the £10,000 that, that maybe you won't benefit from saving, but why society will benefit from saving. And that, and that you know, the, so the 10-year, the long-term plan talks, you know, there is this real move towards preventative medicine, but it seems that one of the fundamental things that's missing is this cost-benefit analysis. Yeah. Health economic case. How do we make a solid health economic case two organizations where their budgets have worked out annually so that's it as well and the budgets cross boundaries as well so you know saving money in one place um might cost money in a different place and vice versa so yeah it's always it's always the difficulty when you enter the public healthcare system and try and create a sustainable business model into it it's um and you know i ran that accelerator that you, that you talked about before so you know i've helped companies like yourself try and do that and it's it's a tough gig um and it strikes me that yeah the the incentives have to change have to change if we're going to make the change that's necessary at scale, I think, as you say, there needs to be these more zoomed out um, opinions and, and and views of the system in order to say, well, it's okay if if we if we pay for something here and we save money in a different place. We need to share that, or we need to figure out a model that works for everybody. And yeah, I think that's really the only way we're going to do that in the public sector. For me, I do feel very optimistic, and I feel particularly um, optimistic that in the UK we're in a good place to do that because of yeah, I agree health system you know there are these problems that we haven't yet found a way to overcome but you know we can uh, it feels like we can make a case that if i help someone stop smoking in london then the health service in aberdeen is you know, will benefit if they end up going back to aberdeen yeah so it's, it's not a simple task but one that i do feel we have the ability to solve and, and then once we've solved it here i think that we you know we can export that um as well one thing I also want to touch on um, before we before we close out is you must collect a heck of a lot of data. Um, Four million patients documenting exactly how their journeys are going with how they're smoking or hopefully not smoking. Um, what do you collect? How is that useful? How do you use it? I mean, I assume there's loads within that in terms of, as you mentioned at the very start, you know, your, your ability to do um, enormous amounts of trials and, and RCTs, randomized control trials that you mentioned, and create loads of evidence for the specialty. I imagine there's just so much that you, that you can do and are doing with this data, right? Um, it's more can do than are doing, to be honest. Um, but, I mean, yes, that data is um, at the core of what we are trying to do here because you know, we're trying to solve a problem that, that hasn't yet been fixed. Um, how, do you, I, how do you identify the behaviour change techniques in watch combination, form, dose, 
frequency, mm. what moment in time. You know, there's, 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 there's really major unanswered questions that, that data can lead us toward. Data and theory. So again, I'll come back to theory because I'm just, I'm, I'm a real believer in it. Um, so you need a theory to go, okay, well, how am I going to interpret the data? Through what lens am I going to interpret this raw core information? And if you don't have a theory, if you don't have an explicit theory, then you'll have an implicit theory. It just won't be stated. We we've all think, we all look at data and go, okay, well, what does that mean? And, and we're filtering it through a, and like I say, an explicit or an implicit understanding of the world. Um, and what we ultimately, so... We, we collect all kinds of, uh, of data about um, uh, about the, the, the way that people use the app, about their um, their engagement with it, uh, how that then maps on to um, success rates. Uh, but I think fundamentally, this, there's um, that we're really at the very early stages of, of, of all of this data collection process. Not least because we don't know how ninety percent of our users do and 90% of our people do not complete follow-up measures so we we don't know if they're smoking or not from a scientific perspective and uh, you have to err on the side of caution you have to assume that anybody who doesn't respond to follow-up has returned to smoking um, even if that's probably not true you would imagine some people are still successful but until we increase um, rates of follow-up, then our understanding of what isn't isn't or is not effective is going to be hindered. Uh, and I think that the process for us over the next few years will just will be to get better at data collection. Uh, and once we've got better at data collection, I think that's when we'll be in a position to really make sense of it. Because mm. until you know what data you've got making inferences or assumptions or basing strategy on it um it's still hit and miss you know you might you might be a little bit better off than if you had no data but if you're interpreting your data in the wrong way if you're not fully understanding what's in front of you then you, you know you could be making the wrong decision so um really good data collection procedures um understanding how to make sense of the data that you've got um, looking to forge a relationship with users where they give you data willingly and fairly. Yes, uh, yes, exactly. So uh, you know, we, we are, um, you know, we will never uh, give our data to any other company or shit or lend it or sell it or do any other. We, we are very, very protective of our data because we feel that our users give it to us in exchange for us using it to help other people quit smoking. Mm rather than to sell it to, to, you know, someone who wants to use it for location targeting or something. Mm. So you have to, I think if you forge a relationship with your users where they are then willing to tell you how they have, whether they're still smoking or not, or, um, or, or whether any particular technique has helped them deal with their craving in a moment in time, then you've got something that, you know, you can build upon and, and come up with, Oh, uh, I know. We 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 really know that that um, technique A really works for person B in, in time C. So, I guess to summarise that, then, so the the aim is to build a really good relationship with users so that they give you very good and lots of data, and that's to create a fully personalized service that adds the most value to them, ultimately, in this case, to stop them smoking. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Ideal. Think, yeah, and, it, and it, the, the risk is that, you know, you can get data from people, but will that data be accurate? I don't know how many... Yeah. If, if, I, if, if, if I see a form on a web page that says, <laughs> please tell us how you found us, and it's required then I will deliberately put something that I, that I have now, another way that I've got there. Because I think, don't force me to give you data without give, there being some kind of understanding of what the exchange is here. It's really interesting. Um, so I think that, you know, th this is why I think this partnership thing is, is very important. And it's the thing that we can do in health tech. Because typically what you find is that if you've helped someone get better, then they are, they kind of want to help you help other people too. 
Mm. Now, there is that real strong relationship, and it's one of the reasons why you know, we've got some, some really positive reviews. People, I think, and I, I'm, I, you know, to be perfectly honest with you, I don't think that we've helped as many people or mm. helped as much as they think that we've helped them. We, we just get attributed with, with helping because we are the sort of the most salient thing at that time. And, you know, and I'm not, I don't want to downplay my, the help that we provide too much because I think it is important. But there is this sense of, um, oh, we like what you're doing. We don't want anyone else to suffer in the way that I have suffered. Um, we will help you along the way. And, and this is where these, you know, these good data collection procedures and, and fundamentally, you know, the fundamental thing that we are interested in is does it, does it work or not? If, you can, if we can just find that out, then we're moving towards this goal of these personalised behavioural interventions. So I thoroughly enjoyed this chat and I'm going to, I'm going to summarize this by just telling you two things that I've learned here. And that's, or two things that I think healthcare entrepreneurs should take from this podcast, which is first of all, the health tech entrepreneur should build a really good relationship with their users for a fair exchange of data. I think that's a really important and really, really nice message for people to take home. And the other one is that I think all health tech entrepreneurs need to embrace behavioral change theory when they're designing products and services. Um, I think those are two things that have really kind of come out for me in this podcast. And as I say, thoroughly enjoyed the chat. So yeah, to close us out, David, why don't you tell us the summary of, of what you're up to and, uh, and any asks of our audience? Uh, well, thank you very much, James. I've, I've really enjoyed the conversation too. Um, I'm um, David Crane. I'm the founder of Smoke Free. We're a stop smoking app that is attempting to deliver highly personalised behaviour change interventions uh, to individuals to help them um, stop one of the... Um, the greatest causes of preventable ill health, illness and death worldwide. Uh, we are looking for um, data scientists to help us make sense of the data, uh, people in the AI sphere um, to generally provide these more personalised interventions and, um, and, and, and people, funders, to, to help us grow um, beyond the growth that we've already experienced. And where can people download the app? Uh, the app is available from smokefree.ai uh, and my email is dave at smokefree.ai. Thanks, David. Thank you very much, James.